the first thing is to show up so that people know that it's okay to be pro-nuclear. That's the first message. It's okay to be pro-nuclear. I'm here. I have kids. I have grandkids. I care about the world. I care about, I care about uh, you know, having the trails so people can get out into nature. I care about all these things. And I'm pro-nuclear. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, due to popular demand, I am lucky to be able to talk to an expert in the lifeblood of modern civilization, our electrical grid. The grid is the pulse that sustains civilization. It provides us with the energy to run our labor-saving appliances. It provides us with lights. It empowers our computers. It heats our homes. It refrigerates our food. Without it, we would be tossed back to 19th century living conditions. It powers all of modern technology and allows us to communicate around the globe. The grid is also a curse. It is an industrial behemoth that emits dangerous pollution into the atmosphere. The burning of fossil fuels kills millions of people around the world every year from particulate pollution and is one of the leading sources of greenhouse gas accumulation that's forcing the climate into a state it hasn't been in since our species, Homo sapiens, evolved about a half million years ago. My guest will tell us about the hidden fragility of our electrical grid. If you like this content, please hit like on your podcast app. Please share it with your friends, spread the word around, and feel free to join us on our Facebook discussion group, The Rational View. As a working chemist, Meredith Angwin headed projects that lowered pollution and increased reliability on the electric grid. Her work included pollution control for nitrogen oxides in gas-fired combustion turbines and corrosion control in geothermal and nuclear systems. She was one of the first women to be a project manager at the Electric Power Research Institute. In semi-retirement, she became an advocate for nuclear power, one of the most environmentally sound forms of energy, and began to study and take part in grid oversight and governance. For four years, she served on the coordinating committee for the Consumer Liaison Group associated with ISONE, her local grid operator. She teaches courses and presents workshops on the electrical grid. Her previous major book was Campaigning for Clean Air, Strategies for Pro-Nuclear Advocacy. Meredith's newest book, Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid, should be required reading for any politician in office today who needs to decide how to transition away from fossil fuels and fulfill our society's obligation to future generations. She and her husband, George, live in Vermont. They have two children and four grandchildren who live in the New York City area. Ms. Angwin, welcome to The Rational View. I'm very glad to be here, Dr. Scott. Very Thank you for coming on. Could you tell... I- us all a little bit about your background. Uh, how did you get into chemistry and then the grid? Well, I was always interested in science, and uh, I decided to uh, to major in chemistry in college. Um, I guess one of the things about chemistry is there's like a hundred elements, and so you, you can hope that if you do uh, decent work, you can make some progress and make life better. I I, I knew. Uh, some pe- many people in physics, uh, and they seem to be uh, working on huge problems, cosmological problems, the theory of everything problems. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I can do a little bit. I can't solve these problems. This seemed all too theoretical. So anyway, I majored in chemistry, and then uh, for uh, physical chemistry, you have to take the. Uh, this is back in the day. I'm sure it may be different, but uh, you had to take the. Uh, uh, physics course, with, with, which required uh, calculus and uh, differential equations before we took it. And so I, I took that course, and I, and I met my husband, who was in um, 
math, who also had to take that physics course. And that, so we married as undergraduates, which is why we've been married over 50 years. Amazing. So uh, then you became interested in the electrical grid. How, how did that uh, become a thing for you? Well, I, I guess the thing is that I, I was interested in rocks. I mean, that's a funny word to start, but I was interested in rocks and mineral chemistry. And I, I, I was working toward my PhD in mineral chemistry. And I, my husband and I had become a bit of rock hounds going to, you know, uh, mine tailings and trying to find crystals and stuff like that. And uh, then um, when I uh, began working, I realized that geothermal energy was really interesting. And so I wanted to have a job in, in geothermal energy. And, and I, got, uh, I got positions in geothermal energy. I was uh, the, uh, one of the project managers in, in geothermal energy at the Electric Power Research Institute. Uh, and uh, I just... I just found that it was a really interesting mixture in between kind of regular chemistry, knowing about the rocks of the earth and, and, uh, and uh, something society needed very much, which was uh, electricity. Um, and I was living in California uh, around that time. And the geysers is the, one of the biggest geothermal plants in the world is 700 or more uh, megawatts of geothermal energy. So I had an example right in front of me, and actually that's how I got into uh, uh, energy. Um, oddly enough, when I, I, uh, you don't get your perfect job when you, when you start out. You don't say, oh, I want to be in geothermal energy, and somebody goes and hires you in geothermal energy. What I did was I got a job at Acurex, which had a very heavy program in nitrogen oxide control for uh, preventing smog. And they hoped I would work on that program, which I did, and perhaps lead, uh, lead the charge to getting some geothermal contracts too. And so uh, I was working on fossil at that point, And I was also uh, doing geothermal, going out to wellheads and stuff. And uh, then when I moved to, um, uh, when I was hired away from Acurex to the Electric Power Research Institute to be a project manager, uh, then I was in geothermal. But it turned out that some of the problems we had uh, were similar to some corrosion problems in uh, nuclear. So I began meeting nuclear people. Now, I wasn't against nuclear, but I didn't get up in the morning and say, oh, I want to work in nuclear. I, I want to work in geothermal. But I began to really appreciate uh, nuclear and also when I was in geothermal, I kept being asked uh, to evaluate whether EPRI should spend, well, uh, not just me, but others, but should spend uh, money, spend its uh, research money on other areas of geothermal. For example, there's something called the geopressure zone down in the uh, Gulf Coast, which is basically, uh, you could call it lousy gas wells with hot water. But the idea is that somehow we could we could uh, exploit it as geothermal, and then uh, then there was the Los Alamos hot dry, hot dry rock project. So we were running around uh, 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 doing all this uh, evaluation as well as uh, organizing our own contracts about corrosion and stuff. I began to realize how limited they were, and 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 so when I began working with the nuclear group. I really saw that as an, uh, an opportunity to make a, a difference on a bigger scale. So uh, I guess it's kind of an odd way to go into this, but uh, that's where it was. Now, you understand that all this stuff I'm doing, all of it, was um, was about uh, materials. I'm a chemist, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, corrosion control, pollution control. Uh, when I came out, I, I came to the conclusion that nuclear was the the most non-intrusive and most easy to be widely deployed clean technology. So that was great. Uh, and when I moved out here, uh, I was sort of semi-retired, and uh, I decided I've always written a bit, and I decided to write a mystery story set in a nuclear plant. So I gathered myself together to do that, and I wrote it. And then I had to find somebody who worked in the nuclear plant to review it. 
So I did. I found uh, Howard Schaefer, and he uh, he would review it for me. Now, that's a big thing to ask someone. Could you read this whole book and tell, you know, please review it? So anyway, he said, well, if I do that, I want you to come with me to some of the hearings. I'm like, okay, sounds good. Well, at the hearings, I realized how extraordinarily slanted they were to the anti-nuclear groups. I mean, it was a Oh, they were, for example, um, public service board hearings, uh, NRC hearings, uh, and the anti-nuclear people came out in, in force, in costumes. Uh, they had no particular problem with shouting and interrupting. At one point, I saw an anti-nuclear uh, uh, representative actually trying to pull the microphone away from the moderator uh, at, at a public, I mean, I was like, whoa, who knew this stuff was going on? And so I, I became a, 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 a pro-nuclear advocate because Howard introduced me to this whole world. <laughs> and in the course of being a pro-nuclear advocate, I just, I like to write. And, and I felt that what was going on with Vermont Yankee didn't get enough space in the newspapers and stuff. And so I, and it also got slanted coverage, in my opinion. And so I went to, uh, I began blogging about it. Well, one of the things is the power plant had interactions with the grid. So I was kind of learning about the grid one blog post at a time. And a man who was in the consumer liaison group uh, was reading my blog and he said, why don't you join the consumer liaison group for the grid operator? And I said, well, I guess so. That could be good. At any rate, so that is, uh, that is how I uh, joined them. And that's where my education began in honesty, not just one blog post at a time trying to figure out what they were saying, you know, because you read something about the grid. It's nowadays, I think I, I'm going to be, boastful here, but I think my book, Shorting the Grid and its Glossary, helps you understand things. But back then, you see a headline and, and, and you go like, yeah, uh, what do they mean? What does not allowed to delist from forward capacity auction actually mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of terminology. And once you get on the inside, you, yeah. can, you can maybe explain that better. So you, you've written a lot on the grid your your book is is focused on the grid your book is is a warning about the grid fragility you call the grid fragile yes. what do you mean by that yes that's a really good question uh one of the things is that we tend to look at things as on off black white whatever and what is actually happened is things can begin to go downhill and become more fragile. So here I, I have a, a water bottle, you know, a usual kind of plastic water bottle here. And if I drop it on the floor, I can pick it up again. It's not particularly fragile. If it was a very cleverly made, very thin wine glass, which would be a silly thing to have here first thing <laughs> in the morning, but if I dropped it on the floor, it might break. It would be fragile. So the thing is that the grid is becoming more fragile. It is moving from the plastic water bottle that is sturdy to the wine glass situation. It's taking less and less to cause problems on the grid. And uh, so let me give you uh, an example of that. It is not unusual uh, for Vermont to have very cold weather in the winter. <laughs> this is not unusual. And uh, we have to look at that and say, and yet, in what was really a fairly ordinary cold snap that lasted like six days instead of four, we came very close to having rolling blackouts. And I write about that at the beginning of my book, because the grid is becoming more fragile. Or for example, let's look at um, Texas right now. Well, it's always so much fun. But let's look at that. They're they are uh, concerned. They were very concerned about about uh, having enough uh, energy, uh, uh, electricity on the grid for a hot spell in May. I mean, or let's look at California. One of my friends in California wrote me something like, the flex alerts say I'm not supposed to use 
minimize my electricity use between 4 and 9 p.m. during this hospital. I'm a single mother. I come home from work and I cook and that's what I do. Don't judge me as, you know, somebody who's trying to break something. Yeah, wow. So that's what I mean by fragile. Less and less. I mean, less and less can bring bring problems. So and why is this? Why is the grid becoming more fragile? I'm, you know, we have good engineers working on the grid. They should know what the problems are. Why? What is, first of all, what is the cause of the fragility? Well, there's different reasons. The fragility that I write about is uh, what's called uh, lack of resource adequacy. That is, there just aren't enough power plants on the grid, and the power pl- or the power plants are on the grid, but they can't get fuel, and therefore the the grid operator, in order to keep the whole grid up will basically turn off a part of the grid and then turn that back on and then turn off another part of the grid. So uh, one part is blacked out for an hour or two, and then that gets back online and the the um, the next part is blacked out for an hour or two. So the blackout rolls from one physical area to another. So that's why they call it rolling blackouts. Now it's here, now it's there. Now, has, has that actually... Is that actually occurring somewhere? Is that are, are they implementing rolling blackouts anywhere? I don't know if they're doing that right now. They tried to implement them in Texas, Texas last February, and they uh, they occasionally implement them in California. Uh, they a little too often, in my opinion, they implement them in California. Uh, and uh, and and then what, if you begin, if you can read past the uh, the jargon, and what, when my so worries about what's going to happen this, I'm sorry, Midwest system operator worries about uh, what's going to happen in the Midwest this summer. Uh, they're talking about that, doing that sort of thing again. You know, they, they, they call it different things. They call it load shedding. They call it, that is, a, uh, they call it um, uh, uh, emergency measures, all kinds of things. But yes, rolling blackouts have happened in California in in situations that I didn't consider to be all that dire, okay? And uh, that's what I mean by fragile. Uh, we were about one or one and a half days away from them if the cold hadn't broken in New England. It does get cold in New England. This is not a surprise. Cal- uh, Texas uh, ended up, implementing rolling blackouts, but then they couldn't roll them. They actually had uh, too too little uh, energy on the grid and too many problems happening, so they couldn't actually roll them. So people were out of, of, of power for 48 hours. It, the rolling blackouts are something that the grid operator can control when you actually have a whole area that goes out, when it, 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 it blacks out, and you have to black start it. That means that you have to begin bringing up the grid in a controlled way. And it's not just an area that you assign to be blacked out. Then um, it isn't. Uh, it, 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 that's what happened in Texas. Yes, rolling blackouts are a thing, and uh, they are more likely, in my opinion, to be a bigger and bigger thing in the future. And as I say, there's always the problem that you're going to institute the rolling blackout, and then you discover that you're actually in a real blackout for a while, like happened in Texas. And what is it about the cold that causes this problem? Is it heating, electrical heating, or, or what? What is it uh, that, that's causing? There's a lot of different things that cause this problem. Let me let me let me uh, let me talk about um, Texas and and and, uh, and New England because these are two different causes for this problem. The first thing is that um, in cold weather, both in Texas and in New England, you end up with more demand on the grid. And in Texas, a lot of people have uh, um, heating, uh, electrical heating. Uh, up here in New England, people don't have electrical heating. It would be insanely expensive. But when the weather is really bad, I mean, a lot of our houses up here in New England are older, uh, are drafty, and when we get right down to when the weather is bad, tons of people 
have little extra space heaters in one part of the house or another because otherwise the house would be unbearable when it gets to be 20 below. So in either case, you have um, you have uh, extra demand on the grid in the winter. Now, one of the things, both in New England and in Texas, but it, it worked out differently in the two places, is that we have gotten grids, we are growing grids that have what I call the fatal trifecta. And I'll just talk about two areas. To, how do you make a grid fragile? And uh, the two things that are, the three things in the fatal trifecta is you put in a lot of renewables that go on and off when they want to, not when the load is there. Then you back up those renewables with natural gas, which delivered just in time through pipelines that have only a certain ability to deliver it. There's no fuel stored on site. And then the third thing is that you count on the neighbors to help you. And uh, and really, uh, that was just a joke, uh, because when you get right down to it, the neighbors are having the same weather. And if you want to look at that in Europe, counting on the neighbors to help you has uh, geopolitical implications. You know, in other words, uh, you know, if I say gas is just in time and the pipeline can only carry so much, I'm not actually concerned that somebody who hates New England is going to turn off the gas in that pipeline. But anyway, so one of the things is that, so one of the things is we've got the, the renewables that go on and off when they want to. And, and you can see in Texas that um, the, uh, the, uh, there were 40 gigawatts of wind at one point, uh, quite a lot of wind at, on the grid at one point, but then the wind died down. And so the natural gas had to make up for the lack of wind, okay? So they ramped up with natural gas because the wind had died down. That's how it's planned to operate. If the renewable goes offline, natural gas, which is called a fast response uh, 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 system, uh, begins ramping itself up. And um, the trouble was that uh, it was uh, in New England, a lot of our natural gas was diverted for home heating. Okay. So there's, uh, there's demand on the grid in New England because we have little space heaters, but there's also demand on the natural gas. And the natural gas for home heating has priority. So a power plant may not be able to get natural gas because it's, uh, the home heating natural gas contracts are what's called firm, and most of the power plant contracts are what's called interruptible. And uh, anyway, so so in in New England, there was a lack of natural gas available in for the power plants. In Texas, there was a lack of natural gas available simply because they have become so dependent on natural gas. It, it's only like 50% of our, our, our usual energy in New England. I, it seems to be much higher in Texas. Uh, I, and um, I just wanted to say that time period I'm talking about, our grid operator had put together a winter reliability program. And the winter reliability program consisted of buying uh, oil to be stored at, at what's called dual-fired natural gas plants, plants that could burn oil or natural gas. And so you could have oil stored on site, fuel stored on site at a natural gas plant. And this is basically what saved the grid. Uh, when I say there was oil stored on site at some natural gas plants, and so we were using some natural gas when the plants couldn't, we were using oil when the plants couldn't get natural gas, the grid was operating on 30% oil fire. It was 30% of the electricity was coming from oil. Most of the time on our grid, 0 to 1% comes from oil. So you see that this oil just saved the grid, okay? Uh, unfortunately, it was a very long cold snap, and the, the oil stored on site was uh, only a day or two away from
from running out also. So uh, that, that that was a very uh, unpleasant, uh, could have been an unpleasant scenario. Meanwhile, in Texas, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that they, they didn't have an oil stored on site program. Uh, and uh, but what, but one of the things that uh, they they did end up having was uh, weather related problems with natural gas delivery and uh, and and uh, so forth. So we did we, we, we're pretty good about winterizing here. <laughs> so that wasn't one of our major problems. Yeah, it's interesting because um, the whole um, grid transition, is is based on the need to get rid of uh burning of fossil fuels to minimize the carbon dioxide footprint and address climate change and one of the key transitions that has been um identified is to get rid of coal and natural gas has been used pushed by the uh fossil fuel industry as the replacement for coal uh, they've, they've said, okay, well, we're going to stop burning coal and we're going to get natural gas. And that certainly has health uh, benefits because coal has all sorts of soot and particulate that's really, really, really bad for health. So going from coal to gas is much better for um, the health of the population, but it's still burning fossil fuels directly. And so it still has a very high uh, carbon footprint. It's not really a great solution. So there seems to be a polarized debate about how to decarbonize the grid. And on one side, there's the anti-nuclear pro-gas. And on the other side, there's the, uh, there's the group that decides nu that nuclear is baseload. Um, and I've heard recently uh, a lot of the anti-nuclear people saying baseload is a myth. We don't need baseload. We're just going to interconnect everything and there's the wind is blowing somewhere all the time is that a is that a you know are we going to eventually get there it's i'm sorry it's completely unreasonable the wind is blowing somewhere all the time means that you, you you're going to have a, uh, uh, um, huge overbuilding of wind turbines that can supply both their areas and storage for their areas and some kind of giant uh, 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 transmission lines. And the longer the transmission line, the more wastage this is, the more, the more, more uh, of the electricity actually just doesn't get delivered because it's, you know, he, it's busy heating up the transmission line or whatever. Uh, it is, uh, no, that is not reasonable. I am so tired of that statement about we don't need baseload. I mean, people, you know, I, when when I give a talk, uh, for example, uh, I was giving a talk to some uh, uh, engineering students at uh, um, uh, Oregon State, and I, and I was showing them uh, this is what baseload is. Baseload is what's going all the time. Okay, it's what's going all the time. And nuclear could provide all that baseload. And then I, I, I also uh, have some um, uh, uh, charts from New York ISO. And basically, uh, the, the amount of electricity that is, uh, that is all the time electricity as opposed to variable demand electricity, there's this lovely chart of, of uh all the time electricity, baseload electricity versus demand for different areas, okay? And different areas in New York. I mean, very rural areas of New York State, New York City, and so forth. And it's, it's the, with one exception, which is, I don't know why that is, which where baseload is 59% of the electricity, all the, uh, all the baseload in, all the other areas in New York State over the course of the year, 2021, were was uh, between 60 and 69 percent of the load. Okay, so you're looking at uh, 40 to 30 percent is the variable, and and if you had all that base load in nuclear, not putting out any CO2, well that would be great, and you wouldn't have to transition as much. Now, somebody's going to say, oh, you need to have a 100% transition or it doesn't work. 
I'm like, there is no such thing in this world. This world is, is, is you know, you can get to 80% and then, it's, and then it gets harder with almost anything else. Uh, anything, you know, or as, as one of my friends told me about a project, the first 80% of the project takes 80% of the effort and the next 80, 20% takes 80% of the effort. I mean, that's kind of the way the world works. And uh, at least with everything I've ever done. And, uh, you know, or let's say, uh, so what I'm saying is that if you could, if you could use the baseload, which is uh, 60 to 70% most places, of nuclear, which is not making CO2, then you could begin talking about what mixture of natural gas and, and, and renewables and batteries and stuff do we want for the load following. But nobody talks that way. They just don't. They're like, we got to get to 100%, and then we're going to have to get everything electrified. And so the 100% is actually much more than that. And of course, don't use nuclear. And I'm like, I, I don't think the people who are anti nuclear. I do not think they really care about the climate. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry. They, they may say they care. They may even believe they care, but they're not willing to actually do the work of trying to figure out what would work. And, and you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll push my book, Shorting the Grid, a lot, fine, but I also uh, encourage people to read um, uh, a, a Bright Future by um, Joshua Goldstein and Stefan Quist and uh, wrote the, A Bright Future, how, how some uh, countries have solved climate change. And I think it's a very important book. What The Bright Future is about is what places have actually decarbonized their grid. And it's France, it's Ontario, it's uh, uh, Sweden, and it's a mixture of, of hydro and nuclear. That's what's worked. So when somebody says, I don't like, I, I want, we have to decarbonize and, uh, uh, and we can't use nuclear. I'm like, are you looking at what's worked or are you just, you're just saying what you think should work, what, what you hope will work, what, 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 what uh, you wish will work. Yeah. Yeah. They, they typically will, will at this point then go and say, well, Mark Jacobson has made a whole bunch of studies at MIT about how we're going to interconnect everything and how batteries and we're going to build new hydro pump storage. And he's got paper models of how this might work in, in a decade. Uh, and we should gamble our civilization on, on his assumptions. <laughs> so I, I'm a little bit skeptical okay. of that gamble. Yeah. Well, Anybody who sues people who disagree with them has lost all credibility in my opinion. Agreed. And, and, and you know, uh, th th there's this whole part of my book where Jacobson says um, uh, we will be able to use a lot of uh, hydro uh, and, and without building new plants, you know, because we'll put extra turbines in the plants we've built. And I'm like, are you crazy? And then... Then he said, no, that was just a hypothesis. I didn't actually expect that was ha going to happen. It was a hypothesis. But he never never said it was a hypothesis. He, he just sort of said it was. Now, I, I, I don't advertise this because it's not a deep. There are areas where my knowledge is deep and areas where it's thin. And uh, one of the thin areas was that at one point I was doing a uh, corrosion control project on on, on uh Hydro pen stocks, and I'm, I'm gonna, but I don't consider myself a hydro expert. But I have uh, visited hydro plants. I do have a, an idea of how they work. And and, and when I read this, he says we're just going to put an extra couple of turbines in. I'm like, whoa, whoa, is this guy for real? You know. So, but the trouble is that people want to believe what he's saying. They really want to believe it. I mean, I, uh, uh. When I was a little girl, I, I lived in an apartment and uh, uh, with my mother, who was divorced, and I wanted her to get me a puppy, and she wouldn't. And um, if someone had said to me, I can persuade your mother to get you a puppy, I would have believed them. I would absolutely believe them. But the thing is, I'm older now, and that's not the engineering way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're right. It's, it's evidence versus, you know, assumptions. And the evidence shows that the decarbonizer grid, you need a baseload of nuclear or hydro. Uh, and that's been the case. Germany has spent I don't know, 15 years on their energy wind uh, 
breaking down nuclear power plants and building up windmills and they have not significantly decarbonized their grid. They're still 10 times worse than France in terms of their emission intensity. And they have the most expensive power in Europe. And now they're at the, they're basically funding the Russian war effort in Ukraine by paying for Russian gas to keep their lights on because they don't have this backup. And, you know, gambling that batteries are going to come along online and and back up these intermittent renewables in the next decade is is i don't know it seems very very foolish and and taking a a wild chance i mean people will say oh i've got there's 10 different technologies of batteries that are going to come and save the grid there's going to be we're going to pump air into underground uh storage areas and use pressurized air we're going to we're going to stack blocks in a big gravitational tower to to store energy and batteries are going to be grid scale before you know it. Uh, how would you uh, address that statement that storage is going to fill in the gaps? We're going to overbuild renewables uh, by a factor of 10 so that we can uh, charge up batteries and save the grid without nuclear. This assumes that the one thing we want to spend our money on is, uh, is overbuilding in order to get exactly the electricity mix that we think is uh, somehow nobler than other electricity mixes. Because, I mean, if you want to overbuild something, just overbuild nuclear. It's fairly straightforward, and you can put it where you want. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, uh, also build uh, uh, long transmission lines and so forth and so on. I mean, it's, it's a straightforward thing. Uh, but, you know, we have a lot of, other needs in this world besides the exactly the electricity we want uh, or, or some people want i want nuclear okay but there are people who want you know we want all renewables even if we have to build 10 times as many renewables and uh put in four times as many batteries and uh i don't know i, I when i joined epi which is a long time ago in the galaxy far away when I was one of about three women project managers, uh, and now they're much more uh, even-handed about it, um, you know, uh, and, uh, but they were setting up a battery test facility. That was, that was, that was like, you know, 40 years ago or something, and they were setting up the battery test facility, and uh, uh, they've been working, people have been working on batteries for a long time, and that doesn't mean there couldn't be breakthroughs, but if you think about it, we're asking a lot of them, right? Uh, most batteries uh, uh, cannot. Um, people are talking about batteries. Uh, for example, like we'll charge it up uh, when the wind is blowing, and then we'll use it the next day. Okay, what do you do about uh, winter? I mean, what do you do about winter? Sometimes there's not much sun. Sometimes the wind is still when it's a real cold snap. Wind doesn't. Wind tends to check out because it's like a dome of cold, like a dome of heat over you. Yeah, we have to electrify everything. We have to change over from fossil fuel heating and fossil fuel transportation to electrical vehicles, to electrical heating. And to do that, the IPCC says uh, we need to triple or quadruple our, our electrical grid capacity. Uh, and, you know, we looking at a, a renewables-focused grid just to get to the 100%, we have to ramp up by a you know by an order of magnitude the production, and we have to ramp up batteries by several orders of magnitude. I think the, the global um, battery production capacity annually is on the order of 300 gigawatt hours. I think that's like that's the order of the world's annual battery capacity production right now. And for like a, a grid like New York, I, I think the, the, the consumption is on the order of 45 gigawatts um, real time. So uh, the world's battery production would back up for one year, would back up the New York grid for, for say 10 hours or one, one calm cold night <laughs> effectively. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the, Exactly. The disconnect, I think, is is and, to get to a full 
triple grid we're basically just turning our entire economy into a, a mining and production system if we're basing it on on these batteries and, and renewable energies the, the the what people don't get i think is the power density of nuclear fission is so many orders of magnitude higher than anything else we have it's just so much less mining so much less land footprint so much less waste uh it just makes sense in so many ways and and but people have been frightened by the messaging of anti-nuclear groups for for the last couple decades that has basically been unopposed and your your original your earlier book pro-nuclear advocacy how do you suggest we deal with this this messaging problem with nuclear well there's a lot of uh, different ways to to deal with it but in my opinion uh the first thing is to show up to show up and be pro-nuclear in other words uh if you're at the, when i wrote that book i mean nowadays there's wonderful things there's generation atomic mothers for nuclear all sorts of things when i wrote that book uh there really weren't uh, very many pro-nuclear groups at all there was uh uh Californians for Green Nuclear Power out in, 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 in California. And then there was what I was getting organized here in Vermont. But but in terms of groups, you know, that you could join, uh, nationwide groups, are you kidding? There weren't any. And um, so uh, I think the first thing is to show up so that people know that it's okay to be pro-nuclear. That's the first message. It's okay to be pro-nuclear. I'm here. I have kids. I have grandkids. I care about the world. I care about, I care about uh, you know, having the trails so people can get out into nature. I care about all these things, and I'm pro-nuclear. So I guess that's the first thing. Uh, and the second thing is, is much more, um, more difficult. Because I don't know how to describe it. Let me, one of the first things you have to teach children is what to be afraid of and what not to be afraid of. I, I assure you from having raised two kids that a two-year-old is not naturally afraid of cars on the street. They, you have to teach them to be afraid of cars on the street. On the other hand, a two-year-old may be really afraid of a cat if a cat scratched him. So the thing is, you could you can say, well, you don't you don't tease the cat and it'll be okay. So you do do a lot of training in raising the kid. Be afraid of the electric outlet. Don't poke at it. Don't poke at the cat. Uh, uh, on, on the other hand, cars are very dangerous. Uh, you know, uh, but the cat isn't very dangerous. Uh, I, I don't know how to describe it. You do a lot of the training on that. And, and and otherwise the kid isn't fit to walk to school when he becomes five years old. You know, <laughs> he's going to run away from a cat in front of a car. This is not going to work. Uh, and so I guess the thing is that it, it really uh, bothers me the amount of messaging about nuclear being dangerous. And if you can get the opposing message there from your own personal experience, then uh, that is um, that is really worthwhile because people have to hear that message. Uh, for example, from my personal experience, I say things like, "I was a chemist. I worked in the lab with a lot of dangerous stuff, and uh, I find that you know uh, radiation, uh, you know, working with radioactive materials is." It's comparatively easy to measure what's going on. It's comparatively easy to shield. I mean, my first, uh, my first, uh, my undergraduate, um, my undergraduate uh, honors project include, uh, included uh, carbon monoxide. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you can say this from your own experience, as opposed to you're silly to be scared of it, don't ever imply that their fears are totally unjustified. Just sort of say, look, if you compare it this way and compare it that way. And from my experience in working in, in, in nuclear and working in a chem lab, and I don't know. I, I, it's, that's how I would approach it, because really, 
people are running to very dangerous things because they're afraid of phantom dangers to move them. Yes, yes, I agree. It's definitely a, a an effort to put it into perspective, I think. And a lot of people will focus exclusively on the dangers of nuclear without trying to compare it to you know what we're already accepting in society. There's a huge double standard that you need to hold on to to be afraid of nuclear uh, with respect to the current status of fossil fuels or or the future status of other uh, non-nuclear grids. Uh, there's a lot more, I think, to be afraid of in that case. So those are very good messages. Um, you know, science and engineering are traditionally what I would call male-dominated fields. Is there anything that you would like to say from your experience to young women who might be interested in entering this field but are maybe worried about discrimination? Well, there's, there, the, the answer is that most of the guys in the field are really very thoughtful guys, in my opinion, okay? They're, they're not just out there being male children's kids. You will run into some of them, and, 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 and you will run into some really weird ones who, who, who somehow think that if, you, uh, if they want to sleep with you and you turn them down, then something is wrong. Uh, I mean, I, there, there are people who will hit on you, especially when you're a young woman. But basically, being in the field, gives you an op. Those guys are comparatively rare, though, okay? I'm, I mean, you shouldn't be surprised if you encounter one, but you shouldn't assume that every guy you encounter is going to be that way because they're not. Uh, but um, I would say that we have a tremendous opportunity in, in, in science to really make some progress for the world. And uh, I, I, I've been reading, I've been trying to make a collection of books about... Um, about uh, uh, women uh, in, in currently uh, women in science uh, because you know when I began reading about women in science and I love Lisa Mettner but it's all about you know Germany and private docents and not being able to get a, a faculty position and all this stuff from from around World War II era I wasn't even born during World War II I mean I'm an old old woman. So I've been trying to uh, look at women who have made uh, uh, progress in and contributed to the world and uh, and in modern times. So I I, I really like uh, a book called uh, A Lab of One's Own by Rita Colwell, One Woman's Journey Through Sexism in Science. It's, uh, she made tremendous uh, strides toward um, Understanding uh, uh, cholera, and 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 had a very distinguished career. Another, and people might think, oh, this is a bad person. Uh, accidentally adamant by Tisha Schuller, she became the um, the uh, uh, head of the uh, Colorado Oil and Gas uh, Association. And you may say, oh, that's bad, but you know, Colorado depends on on extractive industries. And and uh, you know she she had a lot of uh, of of issues about some parts of what she was doing. I like these nuanced books about now as opposed to uh, Hitler's uh, rules about Jews. And I mean, look, I'm Jewish. I, I get that. But what I'm trying to say is, it doesn't help me right now to plot my uh, my uh, my flight forward. And one thing that it's not about. Um, nuclear or, or even energy, but I feel that this book should be a companion volume to the very well-known book Liar's Poker by uh, uh, Michael Lewis. And the book I'm talking about is Damsel in Distressed, uh, My Life in the Golden Age of Hedge Funds by Dominique uh, Miela, who, who, who was a uh, hedge fund manager. And, uh, and and she said distressed, distress as opposed to distress, because she was working with the with the with the with the the companies that are about to go uh, bust, you see, and and reorganizing them and stuff. That was her specialty in hedge funds. And so, I mean, I feel that these are the things. And as I say, if you read 
Michael Lewis's Liar's Poker, I think you should also read Damsel in Distressed. And uh, at any rate, I guess uh, that's that's enough. But I, I, I think there are problems there. But there are people who have gone ahead and made, made uh, positive contributions in modern times and look for those books and read them. Thank you. Those are great recommendations. Uh, we'll definitely look into those. Uh, so we're getting to the end of our time slot. I really appreciate you for joining us on The Rational View today. Uh, <clears throat> for, for coming on the show, I'm going to send you a, a Rational View t-shirt. Uh, great. So thank you so I much. It. I love that t-shirt. Oh, excellent. Uh, before we sign off, I have a, a question that I ask a lot of my contributors. Uh, what what science fiction interests you? What are you, what are you reading? Well, I haven't been reading very much science fiction recently. The, I think my latest science fiction book that I read was um, The Three-Body Problem, and that's a, a while back. But it's a very interesting book. Uh, it's written by a, 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 a man in China, and, and it, it, it includes science fiction, and it includes um, a lot about, like, the Cultural Revolution and stuff. Uh, I, I, I thought that was that was great. And I'm reading a, a set of, I've been reading on and off, they're my go-to for relaxing books, uh, a set of books called that start with uh, His Majesty's Dragon by Naomi Novik. And basically, if you, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Hornblower books uh, by C.S. Forster, uh, Ship of the Line and Reach Quarters. And I'm aware of them. I don't think I've read all of them. Well, they're all set basically during the Napoleonic Wars. Well, His Majesty's Dragon assumes that there are dragons available. So there's a guy on ships and he's fighting Napoleon, but it's sort of like Hornblower with air power. And I just, I just find it very, very interesting. It's also uh, more uh, modern uh, in the sense that the Hornblower books are definitely uh, they describe the world as people describe the world in that time. But for example, uh, the hero of, 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 of uh, His Majesty's Dragon is the second son, which is why he's in the military of a, of a rich man and why he's an officer. Um, and uh, his father is, is landed and uh, very much an abolitionist. Meanwhile, uh, he has a rival who's also a second son, uh, whose father has made money in the slave trade. So you see, uh, in, in the Hornblower books, they wouldn't at, the slave trade wouldn't even enter the, 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 the story. Uh, but in, in the His Majesty's Dragons book, it does. So anyway, that's, uh, that's a lot of fun. Oh, well, thank you for those recommendations. Uh, again, I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.